0: Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at the most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. There's been a lot of talk over the past few months about ChatGPT, GPT-3 and the potential of generative AI. Already tech giants including Microsoft and Meta are looking to add the technology to their products. But generative AI, with its ability to create text that could have been written by a human, is also causing security concerns. Prompt engineering is one of the applications of ChatGPT3, and it has the potential to be used in fraud, business email compromise, phishing, and to create fake news. Even before ChatGPT came on the scene, researchers were investigating how generative AI could be misused. One of those researchers is Andy Patel from security firm Withsecure. His team has conducted a number of experiments to model how ChatGPT-based systems could be used by adversaries or to create malicious content. He started by explaining the background to generative AI and how ChatGPT and GPT-3 work.
1: ChatGPT is based on uh, a model that that came out a couple of years ago called GPT-3. Actually, ChatGPT is based on um, slightly different model it's it's been refined and so they're calling it gpt 3.5 but uh, gpt3 was released by openai a couple of years ago and um, the machine learning community certainly um, were uh, surprised by it but i think the reason why the the general public hasn't really paid attention to that stuff until now is that it wasn't accessible so you could see examples of its use uh, on, on the OpenAI blog, but you couldn't play with it yourself. Um, and I think that's the case with a lot of these generative models. 2022 was the year of of the generative model. People are talking about DALI to um, stable diffusion, mid journey uh, for AI art and uh, GBT-3 for um, for language models. And that's because they've become impressive enough and accessible enough. Uh, for people to understand what they are now.
0: So is much of this to do with the fact that they've created a tool that members of the public or interested researchers can just take away and play about with online?
1: I think that is the,
0: that is the case. Until you
1: play with a tool like this, you, you don't really understand how powerful it
0: is. So give us some examples of why it's powerful before we go into how it's structured and how generative AI actually works. But what could it do... And why is that resonating with people? We've seen all sorts of people trying to use it for things like write news articles or uh, create annual reports or try to do summaries of sports results. And, you know, all sorts of quite interesting little applications where it's really focused on saving people's time in the office.
1: For me, the original wow moment was seeing that that story about unicorns that they, they published on the blog when when the technology was, was first introduced. And the fact that it wrote what looked like a very coherent story that could have easily written by, be written by a person. And actually, it does put out very well-written text, and it can do things that I think just surprise. If you ask it a question, it'll answer it. If you ask it to write a poem, it'll do that. Uh, if you If you ask it to continue... What you've been writing, it'll do that. Um, I, I mean, in some cases, of course, its answers are wrong. In some cases, how it continues what you are writing isn't quite what you would want. But it just sort of seems like magic, I think, to a lot of people, uh, and that's that's why we see the surprise that we do.
0: And it's almost what we hoped search engines would be able to do. If we go back almost twenty years now, that you could throw a natural language question at something, and it would come back with a human intelligible response, something that looks like you've asked a person.
1: Yes. And uh, the way I see it, it is um, a step towards the way they interact with their computers on Star Trek, right? So they, they talk to the computer in natural language, and it understands what they're asking, and it performs a complex task in the background and then spits back results. So this is like a first step towards us interacting with our computers in that way.
0: And why is that important in your
1: view? There are are a lot of tasks which have to be done manually or you have to write code uh, to do them. And so, I mean, people, if people wanted to perform those tasks, they need to learn programming languages or they they need to learn... um, how to to structure queries in in a sort of pseudocode format. Um, But being able to ask something in a natural language um, allows people to to avoid that step of having to learn some specific syntax. Uh, Does that make sense?
0: No, it does, absolutely. So the computer is stripping away or interpreting what you're trying to ask it to do rather than forcing you to, to pre-organize your thoughts into a programming language or even a low-code type of environment. So that makes that makes a lot of sense. Generative AI though, briefly if you could, what is it and how does it differ from some of the other AI applications and some of the other AI tools that are already being used out there?
1: Generative AI, I, I can't talk to the AI art stuff. I haven't really um explored how those train, but in terms of A language model like GPT-3 or GPT-3.5 that's used in ChatGPT are trained to to literally just predict the next token in a sequence of tokens. And when when you think about tokens, you might just think about words. So it predicts the next word in the sentence. And that's literally all it was trained to do. And that's why it's surprising to people even in the machine learning field that that this uh emergence of of something that looks a little bit like reasoning comes about from a model that was only trained to predict the next token in in a sequence how these differ from other machine learning Because i mean machine learning is a very wide field so you have things like reinforcement learning which um is used to to play games like chess and go and starcraft and dota 2 um, but uh, reinforcement learning is also used to control um, robots, so to, to control the the servos and motors between their joints, such that they can walk around in a in a physical environment. Then we have things like classification models, which are designed to predict um or to, to determine what's in a photo, right? To determine is there a dog in this picture? Is there a car in this picture? Things like that. And then we have unsupervised uh, fields such as clustering, where, for instance, um, and this is very applicable to to cybersecurity. If we look at network events, we can we can cluster them. We can extract features from them, cluster those features, and determine uh, which of those are anomalies, which of those might be malicious behavior. So there's a lot of different fields. I don't don't imagine I've covered all of them, but um, there's a wide range of things that one can do nowadays, and I think that that range of things is obviously going to expand.
0: But the key thing is it's not actually reasoning, but it can, in some circumstances, look a bit like that.
1: It looks like that, yes. And as these models get larger we're seeing more things like reasoning um, emerge. I don't think there's there's a clear consensus on, on why that is happening. It just is. Some people actually equate this to our first contact with an alien
0: species. That's actually moderately frightening, isn't it, as a thought there. But if we start to look at the applications of this, if we could just spend a couple of moments discussing or examining how it could be used for good... And then we'll talk about the security aspects. So are you seeing these type of tools already being deployed in industry? Are businesses using them, uh, for example, for help desk responses or other applications to provide information to people?
1: Actually, what we're going to see during the next year or two is these technologies, especially um, generative art and generative uh, language models, being integrated into everyday tools. So you're going to be able to ask Word to summarize a piece of text that you've written, or you're going to be able to ask it to, to come up with a an intro um, paragraph for something you're writing, come up with a list of ideas of things to do. You're going to be able to ask Outlook to reply to an email, and you're going to be able to ask PowerPoint to um, generate a picture based on, on a written description. It can't be under, understated how much these tools are, are going to help us. I mean, they're, they're going to be fantastic. They're going to improve our creativity. They're going to automate away menial tasks. Uh, they're going to um, make us more efficient, more productive. And uh, I mean, the, the benefits are are obvious. So what we're going to see... In the next few years, is an attempt to take these these current models and and make them more efficient, make them smaller, to the point where they can run on on your own computer. Right now, they need huge computers to to run on. They need a, a supercomputer to run on, and so that's why we access them via APIs. And it's very expensive to run these. And if if Microsoft wants to integrate these kind of technologies in into their Office suite. They're going to need to find a way of making that cheaper, a lot cheaper.
0: So there are some barriers to more widespread adoption, even though we have seen quite a lot of discussion around the power of it or the potential of it.
1: Yes, yes. So there are two directions. One is going to be making. I because mean, I think GPT three signifies a point to where these language models have started to to become useful for for general purpose use. GPT two was. You probably haven't even heard of it. I mean, it wasn't—it wasn't anything notable. Um, and GPT four, on the other hand, which will probably be coming out within the next month or so, is going to be uh, a leap above GPT three, uh, a more a more of a leap uh, forward than than there was between GPT two and three. So, um, so on one hand, where there's there's still going to be this push to make even larger language models, even more impressive language models that can do other things uh but but I think that this point where we're at is the point where we can we can start deriving actual use out of out of uh, a language model.
0: Why then should we be worried about it? and from a security point of view, you know what are the red flags that you're starting to see? And I know you've been doing some research on this as well.
1: Yes so our um in our research we attempted to instruct uh, a language model to to perform um actions that would that could be used um by an adversary that could be be used for malicious purposes such as uh writing phishing emails um online harassment um the creation of fake news and and things like that and we found that it was actually very straightforward to do that um and so as much as we're going to benefit from uh from productivity gains and creativity gains from from having access to these tools uh you know there there are obvious um malicious uh, things that can be done with them
0: and given the technological constraints and the fact that this is currently being operated off, you were saying a supercomputer. Is that a realistic threat? To do organized crime groups and online crime syndicates have access to that type of technology at the moment?
1: Well, they would have uh, access as much as anyone else via the API, but that does cost. And of course, ChatGPT and, and a few other GPT-3 tools are free for use uh but if you want to scale your operation if you want to automate the use of of that model then you probably want to um access it via the API and in that case you you're going to have to pay money now for a, for a well resourced threat actor like a nation state that's not a problem but uh, for a majority of, of the rest of um cyber criminals you know it, their operations are, tend to be financially motivated and so there's going to have to be some sort of a return on investment calculation done as to whether they they start to use these things or not. Um, one thing to note is that since we are accessing them via an API, there are some safety filters built into the API that prevent you from, from asking the model to do certain things. However, people have found ways around those those safety filters in most cases
0: and that is of course dependent on the person the persons running the model hosting the model to build those protections in presumably
1: it is and there's also another um, uh, another effort that's going on which is like a an ai alignment effort So what they're trying to do is intrinsically make these models safer by tuning them to not uh, produce malicious or um, unwanted outputs. Uh, That alignment effort um, is what was used to create the GPT 3.5 model that we see behind ChatGPT. But the overall um, alignment effort is actually about artificial general intelligence when we get there, that, uh, that we don't create um, an artificial intelligence that decides to just kill all humans uh, immediately upon its inception.
0: And that goes back to the discussions around robotics and ethics, which date to, to even you know, the sort of 1920s and 1930s, I think, don't they, in, in terms of the literature, way before we had the capability of building anything that looked anything like that
1: exactly yeah and and the thing is like you good, i think the thing about alignment is you can't start it until you have something that's powerful enough that you want to align um and, and it's sort of a chicken and egg thing we couldn't do alignment work until we had uh, a large language model that exhibited these um magical properties that look a little bit like human reasoning and things like that and um and so now that we have that we can start the work because but of course now that we have those models that and the original ones having not been aligned at all, um, you know we, we have this this problem, we have a, a good enough model for um, the sake of creating all kinds of malicious content that um, exists in the world.
0: I was going to say, until the model is out there and researchers couldn't try it, you won't know what its capabilities are in terms of its ability to create malicious activity. But at the same time, by putting the model out there, which researchers can look at to see if it can do malicious activity, we're making it available potentially to bad actors to carry out that malicious activity. So as you said, chicken and egg. Yes, exactly.
1: I mean, right now, it's it's extraordinarily expensive to, to create one of these models yourself uh it's millions and millions of dollars to train them and it's not something that even the most well-resourced threat actors will probably want to do i mean there's a lot of complicated engineering involved in getting um in getting the the training process to work over thousands of gpus and, and things like that so that's not something that people will be able to do themselves uh they'll have to use the models that currently exist but at some point in the future it will be possible for them to recreate these experiments and train their own models once hardware improves and and once these techniques have been uh,
0: made more efficient absolutely and that's what you've been looking at so yes at the moment it may not be possible or economically viable to do that but the principle is there and as the costs come down and the potential prize if you can term it that way for the bad actors increases you know the capabilities increase then they may find it worthwhile investing
1: yes and and, uh, and of course let's not forget that at some point we'll be able to download the weights for these models and run them on on our own systems and then we won't have that safety filter in place anymore we'll be able to access that model directly
0: so talk us through some of the experiments that you did then as part of your research. So you were using a system called LexPage, which is a GTP3-based system, not a 3.5. Uh, but nonetheless, you were able to get some quite interesting results out of there in terms of creating a potential phishing attacks and some other uh, security breaches. So how did you go about doing that?
1: Yeah, so our original idea um, came about when I noticed that people were uh starting to be providing like free access to gpt three and it occurred to me that if if I can get free access to it at that time via Lex.page, then you know threat actors could potentially get access to it in the same way. And, and it seemed like a, a, a good starting point for looking at what could be done with those models. While we um now while we were doing that research, ChatGPT was released um and we didn't start using it we continued to use legst page but um uh it sort of um lit a fire under us that we we needed to to uh conclude the research and and uh, put something out but anyway we looked at like a number of different things so i mean the obvious thing was creating phishing email and what we did was we asked it to create like a single email and then a reply thread i think Five or six emails that in reply to each other um uh because um that makes for a better uh social engineering attack if you embed a link in the replies and you send. Or as though forwarded, you send that that uh, reply chain to someone and say, oh, there's this thing you have to do. The link is in the replies below, so go ahead and click on it. Um, that tends to work better than if you receive the link in a single email directly to your inbox. So, yeah, we tried a couple of, of scenarios, one in which we wrote an, uh, a phishing email that was attempting to convince someone to upload a document, uh, a classified document somewhere, and the other one was uh, quite conventional, CEO of fraud, where we asked someone to transfer some money urgently into a bank account for phishing. I think it was it was fairly obvious that quite short prompts could be used to to create an email, and every time you run that, you're going to get a slightly different email. So for the purposes of regular phishing, um, where it's not very specifically designed. Uh, around around a theme like for instance it's it's not a dhl email telling you that you have a parcel that's arrived or something but just a a generic um uh for instance donations to ukrainian war or or, or those sorts of of things you can generate a, a large number of unique emails by running the same front over and over again and we found of course the same thing for those reply threads now spear phishing isn't the sort of thing where you need to generate a lot of emails. But if you have those prompts and you can just run them, then every time you, you run a spear phishing campaign against someone of that theme, you can and generate a, a new set of emails. Um, yeah, we looked at, uh, we looked at, um, harassment. Uh, so what we did there was we asked the model to actually create a fictional company and a fictional CEO of that company. And then we asked the model to do various things where it, uh, um, harassed the uh, the CEO and the company and and tried to do uh, like sort of brand reputational damage. So we asked it to write some social media posts and we asked it to write some articles. And then we um, included allegations in the prompt and asked it to write an article about the company that included those allegations. And and that worked very well. The next thing we did was a social validation experiment. So this is um, this is where people. Uh, people will tend to engage or or um trust uh something on social media if it has a lot of positive engagement uh attached to it so a tweet with a lot of retweets a lot of likes and and replies that are you know um uh, positive uh, uh to the to the topic so we we did two experiments there one we asked the model to advertise like an NFT investment opportunity and this is something you see a lot on Twitter some of those are probably scams um, and the other one was this Tide Pod challenge that was um a phenomenon several years ago where where teenagers dared each other to eat those tablets you put in in a dishwasher and so there we asked it to uh, to write tweets asking people to take part in this Tide Pod challenge and then to reply with their experience And then what what we did after that was we asked the model to reply to those original tweets it had written, um, you know, in support of, of, of whatever it was. And in the Tide Pod case, for instance, we asked it to reply um, from someone who'd taken the challenge, explain what the, how the challenge felt and and, and thank the original poster for for posting about it. And then after that, another, set of replies from the original poster to those who'd replied to them. You know, just sort of to get this this conversation going and and, and to make these things look legitimate. And um yeah, that worked very well. I think, um next experiment we did was around style transfer. So what we wanted to do is determine whether we could get the model to write uh, in a in in someone's specific writing style. And this would be useful if you're trying to for instance, fish someone by email and you're uh, trying to impersonate someone else in the company, if you can get a hold of some of their emails, um, you can then provide that as a, as a writing style and, and then ask the model to write something specific in that style. And, um, and we found that that actually worked quite well, even, even if provided with quite a brief example of that writing style.
0: So it looked like it did come from the CFO, for example.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah. So we, we tried actually, we, we tried three experiments. Two were quite extreme. One, we generated, we asked the model to write some text in the style of Irvin Welsh, who's a Scottish writer and has this very specific style of, of writing, um, sort of phonetically in, uh, in in the way people in Edinburgh speak. And the second uh, experiment, we described the writing style a sort of, 12-year-old forum poster on a video game forum type of writing style. Um, But the third one, we uh, created like a very informal um, inter-office email sort of chat writing style. Um, And then that one, it was able to even copy. That was a much less extreme type of writing style. But we're kind of calling it text deepfake because it allowed you to impersonate that, that person just one thing to note is that 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 has implications in these leaks if you think about these nation state attacks where they do hack and leak you could insert a document into a set of leaks that was fabricated but if you could if you could um, copy someone's writing style you could insert like an, an email that would incriminate someone of something and if it's in a trove of leaked documents it's very difficult to refute so 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 that's another application for that
0: and how would you rate the quality of what the system was producing for you, based on these prompts and based on these queries? Would you have? Would you expect people to be taken in by it?
1: For the most part, yes. They were. Um, if we asked it to write longer um, articles, it sometimes ended a paragraph prematurely, so it didn't finish the sentence with and, and add the, the full stop, and, and occasionally it um repeated a little bit on the uh, at the beginning of the next paragraph what it had ended the previous one at. so i mean in terms of automation it's something that i don't think could be completely automated you'd want someone to look over the output but for things like social media posts and stuff it um they were very convincing they looked exactly like the sorts of things you'd see on twitter
0: And just as we're seeing or potentially going to see this being used by businesses to speed up, you know, as an assistant to help people to get the information that they need more quickly or to draft that report more quickly, so it could be used by cyber criminals to speed up their processes, to make those spear phishing emails more intelligible and more convincing with less effort.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the nice thing um, is that you, I mean, you don't need someone uh who can write well in a, in a specific language and in, if you think about the the written style transfer stuff that's very um that's something that's quite difficult for even a, a writer to do so uh, the fact that the model can pick up and and um and write in a certain style is uh, is quite powerful
0: so how then should we or can we guard against this being misused are we looking at regulation? Are we looking at codes of practice? Are we looking at a technical solution? What could we do?
1: We need more technical solutions. Actually, I mean, I think we need things. Uh, we need um, mechanisms that can identify things like online harassment. Uh, that can do like automated fact checking. You know, fake news detectors. Things like that. We these are things that are actually very hard to do currently we can't just say that something that was written by ai is malicious because it's going to be used for a lot of benign content so we we still are going to need automated ways to to help with moderation to help with um spam detection things like that i think what's going to be important in the meantime is phishing awareness and media literacy so uh people um verifying the source of, of of a piece of information they receive whether it be a post on social media or an email they have received you're mousing over links and looking at the URL to check that it isn't it, that it is something that they would expect and 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 not a malicious site that sort of stuff is going to be important
0: so actually some of those protections although we're fighting a robot, some of the protections are actually going to be human. Yes.
1: And, and and if you think about it right now, these models can create malicious text. For instance, you could you could create quite easily a script that automatically harasses and, and trolls someone on on social media. And given that we don't have mechanisms that can detect trolling and harassment on social media, the the adversaries actually have the one up. at the the current moment, if they would start using these models.
0: Researcher Andy Patel on the risks posed by generative AI to cybersecurity, and how for now at least it'll be humans, not machines who provide the best defense. That though is all for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back in two weeks time when we'll be looking at some of the issues around data privacy, and whether there can ever be such a thing as privacy by design. We hope you can join us then. Meanwhile, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk and, of course, on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.